This is Trace Mayer, and you're listening to The Noted Podcast with Pierre Richard and Michael Goldstein. This is a public service announcement about the annual Proof-of-Key celebration. That's where the entire community withdraws all Bitcoins to addresses where they hold the private keys and run a full node. So visit proofofkeys.com to learn more about why and how you should participate, and make a small change to your Twitter handle to show your support. Thanks. Another possible cause of an increased demand for money is the introduction of money of a higher quality. If uh, we were uh, in the United States to bring about a transition from the current fiat money system to a commodity money system, we would introduce gold or silver back as money, uh, then we would uh, create a, a money, bring about a money with a better, of a better quality. And as a consequence, the demand for such money would increase. Traditionally, before the 20th century, let's say even before the 19th century, the main technique for people to hold their savings or to save was to hoard money. It was a traditional savings technique. Why did they do this? Well, because they knew that the gold coins and the silver coins would by and large preserve their purchasing power and even increase in purchasing power. Today, of course, it would be suicidal. I do not recommend that any of you hoard dollars or euros or whatever, and even Swiss francs, uh, for your savings. Why would it be suicidal? Because these monies are inflated constantly, so their purchasing power diminishes. Right? Therefore, nobody today saves in cash. But if we were to reintroduce gold or silver as money, then many people would start again, rediscovering the wisdom of the ages and save cash. Right? So the transition to a better quality money would bring about a transition to different ways of saving, one of which would be uh, a larger uh, a larger demand for cash balances, so deflationary pressure. Fly me to the moon, let me play among the stars, and let me see what spring is like on Jupiter and Mars. In other words, hold my hand. In other words, baby, kiss me. Fill my heart with song and let me sing forevermore. You are all I long for, all I worship and adore. In other words, please be true. In other words, I love you. Welcome to the Noted Bitcoin Podcast. This is your host, Pierre Oshard. I'm here with Knut. How are you? Hi there. I'm fine. Thank you. Today, we don't have Michael Goldstein joining us as a co-host, but he, he'll probably be back on the next episode. He's got some, some family events and family first, right? Yeah. <laughs> Great to be on the show anyways. Yeah. Thanks for coming on. And we want to talk about your new book. Yeah. That's why I'm here, I guess. Do you want to tell us about it? Yeah. It's a book I wrote in my spare time. As a New Year's resolution this last New Year's, I told myself to write a page a day until I had something to publish, and so I did. I've been writing articles about Bitcoin for quite a while now, but I thought 
yeah, it was a good idea to write a proper book, uh, sort of expanding on my my views about the whole thing. What made you pick a book over other forms of media? Have you written a book before? Yeah, sort of. I made a, a book out of uh, my Medium articles. Uh, I started writing articles in, I think it was around June 2017. And I wrote quite a few and I turned them into a book just to see how the process went and just to have the experience of publishing a book and seeing what I could do with it. But then I thought it's better if I have a, a, a real book. A collection of articles isn't a real book. So it's been on on my bucket list all my life, I guess, to, to write a proper book. And I guess this is it. This one. Awesome. <laughs> yeah, you can you can uh, cross that off your bucket list now. <laughs> I guess so. And so how did you find kind of on the day-to-day the the inspiration and the motivation? Well, some of the stuff is from older articles and like ideas I had earlier on, but I sort of elaborate on them and uh, go a bit deeper down the rabbit hole in the book than in the articles. And like once you start writing, once you have the idea, it sort of uh, writes itself in a way. Uh, you just if you just have an, an outline of what to write about, it's, it tends to flow kind of naturally after that. Yeah, that makes sense. So, what what were kind of the topics that you felt like were really important to write out in book form? I guess the impacts that Bitcoin will have on on society as a whole are not really explored enough if that makes any sense i think this is a an invention as big as or bigger than the internet itself and i think we have a very different future to look forward to than what we live in now this is like i like the idea of secularism 2.0 that this is this is the next step States became secular around 150 years ago, and this is like when individuals comes become secular from the state, and it's it's a very paradigm changing thing. And yeah, I tried to explore those ideas in the book. Yeah, it's interesting because sovereigns, you know, they they kind of were saying that they ruled by divine right and. There's kind of that same mystique around monetary sovereignty that it is something that you know people assert just without really much evidence that it's only the government that should be uh, issuing a currency. Yeah, it's so basic and so weaved into the the very basic layers of what we perceive to be reality, even though it's just a construction. There's nothing real about money, about traditional money, that is. I think Bitcoin, on the other hand, is like a real cooperation between the actual users of the monetary commodity. To uh, It's a totally different beast than, than what the central bankers are doing. Do you think that central banks and governments are going to fight back? And, and what do you think that'll look like? I think they already are in a way. And I think like not having bitcoin on the front page of every newspaper every day is a testament to that like that they're already trying to not focus on this and not sometimes it seems like they deliberately don't want to 
want people to to see the world changing potential that this invention has, but uh, it might just be ignorance as well. Uh, uh, I don't well, know. Well, they go even further, and, and you know, they write like false negative articles about it, right? Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of those. Bitcoin obituaries is a good site. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think they will fight back, and I think they will do what China is doing now, like trying to uh, promote whatever blockchain technology or some other form of, like, they try to turn this into something else before before it gets too big. Yeah, is it, do you think that, like, it's that and in the case of Venezuela with the Petro, where basically they're, they're just becoming ICO scammers, right? It's not that they're anti-Bitcoin, it's that they're just trying to bring in money. Yeah, I guess, and, and keep control, stay in power. That's the the end game, I think. They were scammers already <laughs> with the national currencies. And uh, I guess they're trying to maintain their position by luring the public that this is, that Bitcoin is just another, it's, it's just one thing among many, which I... <laughs> which I don't, and us maximalists don't, that this is unique in a very profound way. But I do believe that many of these big players will try to try to alter that story or uh, try to change the narratives. Yeah. How do you think reality like catches up with that? Well, inf- it's hard to tell the truth. Of course, it's, it's hard to, to know what to believe and what not to believe for a for the common man but this is like the the most peaceful revolution in history and it's by the most clever people i believe uh, like who if you get this you you have to th- there are some thresholds that you have to you have to have a mind that is willing to to take some leaps that most people aren't willing to take and so those that will acquire wealth first from it will be those most bold and those most curious and those most rational amongst us and that's the way it's a, a revolution is supposed to happen i think if you can call it that and so you know eventually like do you think that there will be parts of the world where there is no bitcoin basically like you know where the government has effectively stamped it out i think it will be harder and harder for them to do that and that but well i i think eventually Bitcoin, it will be the other way around. Bitcoiners will flock to certain spots, uh, certain places in the world. They will move to where legislation is better for Bitcoiners. Like we're seeing that already. People are moving to places where then they can spend their Bitcoins without being harassed for it. Yeah, the the first uh, the first part of the book is about the first chapter is called uh, "Everything a Trade." And it's about how every human interaction can be viewed as a trade. Whatever we do, we exchange something of value to the other person. I mean, just a conversation is valuable to us because we find it valuable to get information from the person we're talking to or we find it valuable to give information to them. And this is the core idea of the book that everything we do in life can be viewed as trade. and what we find valuable is entirely subjective and value can also be derived from supply and demand where the demand part is the subjective part. The 
value is always subjective because uh, and therefore the the demand for different stuff is always subjective including money and what isn't subjective is the supply of a certain good or an asset and in that way money is the value of a currency is also derived from its the demand for the currency and the supply of it and uh, everybody seems to want as much money as possible so the the <laughs> demand part is pretty pretty the same all over the globe but different currencies have uh, different supplies so and bitcoin is the only one that is absolutely scarce and uh, this is what i believe to be the uh, the most uh, interesting aspect of it and the thing that will that will really change the world that and that you keep them in your head yeah the brain wallet what do you think of the the controversy over whether the t- 21 million bitcoin already exist or if you know the the and that kind of gets into the argument of whether the halvings actually matter for the price or not etc do you have any thoughts on that well there's a uh, a chapter in the book or a section in the book that tries to analyze the why satoshi nakamoto set the halvings to occur every four years and it seems like the hype cycles sort of follows the havings and that this way of doing it was like an onboarding ramp for more and more people every time it happened. Like Bitcoins became scarce again and th- therefore more valuable. And there was another hype cycle and uh, you onboarded more people. And a lot of people sold in the next hype cycle and didn't really understand the longevity of the thing. But no one can ever know that if that if if he had it if that was his intention to let the halvings sort of trigger hype cycles, why he didn't do it as a smooth distribution curve instead of just having the the reward or the subsidy every four years. So it's all speculation, of course, but I think he had a purpose with that that it was done on purpose that he sort of saw the hype cycles coming so whether something is priced in or not is also some a topic that comes up often uh, when discussing bitcoin havings and i believe everything is priced in and nothing is priced in i uh, the people that truly see the potential in bitcoin they already know about all the havings and that this is probably going to be the most valuable thing you can own ever and other people just see it as a short-sighted, uh, short-term investment that they might make a buck or two out of. So either either all the pricings are ho- or, or all the halvings are priced in, or none of them are. Does make any sense? Yeah. You know, well, we see like uh, news articles that say like this could cause Bitcoin's price to go up next year. The having it kind of like creates an event around it that then yeah. people discuss and maybe even the very act of debating whether it's priced in or not is what's causing it to be priced in right Um, yeah yeah, something like that it's very meta all of it yeah reflexivity i think george soros called it like leading into it and if you look at the halvings like there a hype cycle never there's never a peak or a a a steep curve just around the halvings Uh, they happen a bit later after each halving so like half a year after or a year after. 
Yeah, and the other part of it, too, do you think that because each having is smaller and smaller, that it'll have a smaller and smaller effect if it has one? Mm, rather the opposite, actually, because the inflow of new Bitcoins are is halved. So that's relatively speaking, it's it's still 50% every time. So, right, but relative to the total volume in the market, right? So like the first halving, you know, if we look at probably at the time it was the Mt. Gox trading volume, it yeah. probably was a substantial percentage of the trading volume, whereas today it would be, you know, much smaller. But I, I haven't actually looked at the data yeah, if you wanted to do some predictions about it, it'd probably be around like the the thing that is having is the flow and the stock is what it is, but the the flow helps, right? So there's this guy, what's he called? Plan B that makes that stock to flow model thing there. But uh, like speaking from an Austrian perspective, I don't really think you can make predictions about about anything really. <laughs> yeah. Other than just looking at kind of the, if you look at the marginal economics of it, right? Um, yeah. There, that's where I think that it's interesting to think about the fact that, in a sense, an old whale who is, you know, finally moving his coins from years ago, on paper, they're, they're already part of the stock. But from kind of a catalactic market process point of view, like they are adding, to the you know the flow of coins being sold, so they can depress the price if they were to just go in and, and dump their old coins. Yeah, you can look at it, uh, look at it like that. Uh, definitely, we'll see where it goes goes from here. I'm bullish, <laughs> but <laughs> aren't we all <laughs> really maximalists? Are by definition bullish, I guess. Yeah, it's how do you think it, the mind virus spreads, right? How, like, what do you think is the most effective or most crucial variables in that happening that there are more and more people who are adopting Bitcoin? One crucial thing is that you have to have lived through at least one hype cycle already and seen it crash and seen it go back up again and surpass that last peak by a tenfold or what it is, what happened last time there. Like the last peak before the $17,000 peak was like $1,000, right? So it's like still 15 times higher than that. And if you lived through one of those and held Bitcoin during them, you know what it's like and you're better prepared for the next one. And so I, I think that this is an onboarding mechanism, definitely. It reminds me in, um, in game theory when they would talk about the difference between playing a game once and playing it repeatedly. And Bitcoin's like a game where we're playing it repeatedly. And so each time you play, if you learn, you can figure out the more optimal strategy. And that's, it's almost like that's why we have these memes of HODL and stacking sets. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And uh, I think that uh, an interesting thought that I discussed with some people in Riga actually is like, is there a point where the inflow of new Bitcoins is sufficiently low and the hodlers of last resort and the, the people who are stacking sets and like just, just acquiring Bitcoin 
whenever they can in any way they can. Is there a point where they like level out so that the price can't go down? Does yeah, that make sense? I, I see what you mean. The, the, the rate of Bitcoin coming on the market is equal to the rate of Bitcoin being taken off the market by holders. Yeah. Um, it's funny because I thought that's what was happening last year when we were at $6,000 just going sideways. Um, yeah. And then it, it like broke down and, and yeah, uh, went down to Yeah, that was really weird. Yeah, that's really weird. So I think that like there's, there's still a lot of people who are not in the uh, Trace Mayer, Poddler of Last Resort mindset. And they're, trying, they're still trying to make dollar profits. Yeah. Yeah, there are probably more of those than we... Well, it's funny because, you know, with each bull market, yes, there are more people who understand, you know, buy and hold, but there are also lots of new people who have not learned it yet. Yeah, of course. And uh, some people are slow learners. <laughs> <laughs> it takes a few cycles, yeah. Yeah, and you can tell them over and over again, like, oh, I made a profit on Bitcoin. I like made like 10 times my money. But yeah, but if you held on to it, you could have made a lot more. <laughs> yeah, the, the, I think the traders are, are the worst at that, where they yeah. they brag about their trade, and it's like, okay, but zoom out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. If, if you had just held Bitcoin, where, where, where would you have been? <laughs> Classic mistake. Now, of course, when it crashes, they make fun of the hodlers, but um, again, very short-sighted. The crashes are a, a, a buying opportunity, of course. And this is this is really uh, when you talk about it like this, and like uh, every every crash is an opportunity, and you shouldn't sell at the tops. <laughs> this becomes a, a a game you play over and over again. That is that is ridiculously easy to figure out how to do. You just just buy them and hold them. It's very easy, and anyone could do it, and everyone should be doing it. And I think it's just a matter of time before that happens. Like, I think we have like two or three hype cycles left before it really gets weird. Yeah, I, I recently saw a statistic that eighty percent of Americans know what know the word Bitcoin. Like they yeah. they've heard it before. Um, and so they, they might not necessarily like, they, you know, obviously they still think that it's tulips and uh, Ponzi scheme or whatever, but yeah. I kind of see that as, as the top of the sales funnel. And then each time they hear about Bitcoin again, they get reminded that it's still alive. Yeah. And sooner or later that, uh, that will be, uh, there will be a tipping point somewhere where everyone is like, Oh shit! This is this is the only thing I have to do. <laughs> this is the only investment I have. To, I really have to make in life. I have to acquire some of this. And yeah, I don't know when it will happen, but I'm pretty sure hyperbitcoinization happens somewhere in time. Like either that or the whole thing, uh, something that we can't foresee destroys the whole thing. That's it's pretty binary uh, to me. So do you think that, like, how do you think the, the best way people can promote Bitcoin, right? If that's something that they want to do. Writing so, books? <laughs> that, that's, that's one thing. Uh, I guess just talking to friends and family about it. And like, just, just having these discussions and bringing up subjects that people usually don't think about. I mean, getting that, seeing inflation as a real problem is a... Uh, a first step, like 
talking to people about inflation and that they all know about hyperinflation, uh, hyperinflationary currencies like in Venezuela and Zimbabwe and Argentina and all that. What most people don't see is that that process is happening everywhere. It's just just at different speeds. So we're all hyperinflating just at different speeds. And uh, that's a good way to start, I think, bringing up inflation as a problem. Yeah, and, and there it's like there's, you know, there's parts of the world where there's, you know, deflation like Japan or something like that. And and yet I think that that's where it's important to teach people about like the actual monetary economics of you don't see consumer price inflation, which is kind of a specific thing. But mm-hmm. look at their bond market, like look at their yeah. financial markets. That's where the inflation is, which eventually will, you know, leak into the real economy. Yes, of course. And it's the same thing in Sweden. They, they When they calculate the official state figures for the uh, inflation rate in the country, they don't count the real estate market. They just look at the uh, the prices of groceries and, and such they don't look at the the real estate market at all um, and even though which is lying yeah <laughs> because people do need to live somewhere right and then yeah the the other element is they it's kind of like the seen and the unseen right henry hazlitt's book uh economics in one lesson we don't see what deflation would have looked like. So maybe prices would have gone down 10% instead of going up 2%, in which case it's really 12% inflation. (laughs) Yeah, the the thing is, uh, there are so many things that we think we've had and that we think we've tried already that we haven't really tried, like a truly free market. I don't believe that has ever existed since the invention of the nation state. And like a truly sound money has never existed either because every every type of money that has ever been has been inflationary and there are a lot of theories what happens when you have a deflationary currency but i don't believe we have ever tried that and uh, well we're gonna find out it's an experiment worth running it definitely is and that's the other thing that a great misconception about bitcoin like people think they can avoid it somehow and that there's risk in having some and uh, yeah a great risk in writing a book about it and throwing your name out there but i believe the risk of not doing anything is greater in the long run i mean if you if you're too late to this i mean it, well all relative of course because i can't i i don't think you can be too late but i th- if you uh if you oppose it and say that it's a scam and like uh, publicly state that it's this is something that will fail. Yeah, you have a lot uh, high risk of having embarrassed yourself right. <laughs> in the future. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think that's why there's so many pseudonymous people on on Bitcoin Twitter? <laughs> Might be one of the reasons. Yeah. <laughs> and and opsec, you know, not wanting to. My opsec is terrible. <laughs> mind like <too>. mind. <laughs> the thing is. Uh, before Bitcoin, I re- I didn't really think about OPSEC at all. I remember on IRC, I put my our IRC nickname is just Pierre underscore Richard. And someone DM'd me and said, you should create a nickname that is not your real name. I was like, I don't care. 
<laughs> uh, well, once once you've done it and once your your real identity is out there, I guess it doesn't really matter. Yeah. <laughs> that makes any sense. Uh, on a side note, there I lost all my bo- uh, Bitcoin in a very tragic right. boating accident the other week, so I don't really know where they are now. <laughs> Sorry for your loss. <laughs> yeah, I I heard it happened to uh, quite a few. Yeah, someone's going to make a lot of money. You know, when fishermen trawl the bottom of the ocean, uh, they're going to... Yeah, that's a hard one. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. That's a good uh, plot for a movie. (laughs) Trying to find hardware wallets on... (laughs) (laughs) Deep sea divers trying to find hardware wallets and trying to extract money out of them. Yeah. Yeah, we, we didn't get to talk a lot in Riga. But uh, I got to network quite a lot there. That's like the first truly Bitcoin-oriented, Bitcoin-only type of thing I ever went to. So that's like the that's where I first started to market the book, and things have been <laughs> quite surreal uh, since then. It has really taken off. I'm really happy about that, getting to do stuff like this and and uh, seeing where it leads. So the book is available in. Uh, Finnish and German, and uh, a Russian version is coming as well right now. And there's an audiobook version of it on the Guy Swans podcast, The Crypt Economy, where he uh, he reads like two or three chapters uh, per episode for five episodes, and then he comments uh, on the uh, on the chapters. And that's the version I I recommend the most because he's he's really good at reading books. For other people, yeah, yeah, as you probably know, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Have you already started on your second book? No, I haven't. Uh, in fact, I uh, I don't really know what what to do next. I tend to have a lot of creative projects like this. I used to make a lot of music earlier on and stuff like that. So I don't know what my next project will be. Probably not a book. Maybe a book if I'm co-writing it with other authors. Maybe something like that. But I have no idea where this will lead. So I'm sort of fed up writing about Bitcoin right now, if if I'm completely honest. <laughs> Since this is like the only subject I've been writing about for the last three years. Yeah, I, I can imagine uh, that being the case. <laughs> what other topics would you want to explore other than Bitcoin? Yeah, good thing. I, um, good question. Very good question. You you mentioned secularism. Is is that a topic that you read about a lot? That you're interested in? Yeah, I I, uh, I really like the uh, the books that were written like ten years ago from the new atheist movement. That was, it was called that afterwards. Uh, I don't think they have had a plan, but th- there were four books that came out around the same time uh, from Sam Harris, Daniel Dennett, Christopher Hitchens, and uh, Richard Dawkins. And I think what they lack or what they miss is like that the state can also be viewed as a religious entity and money can be viewed as a religious phenomenon rather than anything else. And uh, I'd like to explore that thought further. And like you can opt out of everything that isn't verifiable. Uh, yeah, do, do, do you think that's what, what makes different? That's the key yeah. thing that distinguishes between a religious belief and maybe like an observation about reality is, is the ability to verify. Yeah. I I think there's something there. 
verification is is the thing and uh, the more you study things the more the more you see how uh, how many misinterpretations or or scams or just misinformation how much misinformation there is out there so you really need to like try to verify everything on a deeper level i think as a person that's that's something you should aim aim at like understanding stuff because it's hard uh, the internet is full of uh, fake things i remember going to one of these crypto events like two years ago in Stockholm Mm -hmm. and what were really one thing I really learned from this being in this Bitcoin space for for a couple uh, all these years now uh, is that the amount of of scammers and the amount of false information and the amount of gullible people and people parroting charlatans and snake oil salesmen are uh, is really depressingly large us maximalists who i view are the only people that really get this are a minority uh, in a in a sense at these events anyway and i think like the the news in both in mainstream media and in conspiratory youtube <laughs> channels are you should try to verify everything you everything you see and read and you should try to get as many viewpoints on stuff as possible and yeah it's funny because in the 20th century you know with like Karl popper the emphasis was on falsification which to me is kind of just the negative way of saying verification yeah but falsification is the thing that that's the only thing the scientific method does really uh, like you you can't ever prove anything you can just disprove stuff and i guess the same goes for uh, for bitcoin you can it's the verification of a uh, of a bitcoin is like what you do is you can't prove the value of it but you can prove that it's scarce uh, it, that it's probably scarce <laughs> so i guess the f- falsification is a is a good word here like tr- try to find what is false in in everything will make you happier or maybe not happier instantly, but <laughs> might, might might make you uh, depressed at some point when you realize how much nonsense yeah, is going yeah. on. Yes, but you will be better equipped to deal with the depression. Sure. Yeah, I, I think that the other part of it is the the power of verification has made people really want to figure out other ways of applying it, right? Of how can we use this system for other use cases? And then it turned into all of this blockchain, not Bitcoin stuff. Yeah. Uh, I think it is, it's it's a huge mis- misinterpretation of what the invention is and how big a part the consensus consensus rules play in the because whole really, thing. It, it's it's I mean, an interesting the- point that the you can't actually verify with Bitcoin because it's a closed system. Where if you have an open yeah. system where basically you're saying that, oh, you know, this represents assets that are, in fact, the equity of a corporation that actually has physical assets and, you know, humans and processes and all of this open-ended, you know, yeah, stuff that there's no way for you to be able to verify that in, in the same way that Bitcoin can verify it, the integrity of its system. Exactly. As soon as you're connected to something in the 
physical world, uh, the the whole verification mechanism stops working. That's the thing. The only thing you can do is verify within. It's sort of a it's a framework in that sense. You put a frame on something, and whatever happens in inside that frame is that's the thing that you can really be sure about. And it, it you know, from a scientific perspective of you know falsification, I feel like that's what makes it so that Bitcoin actually, in a sense, can be said to be like true is that if you can full, fully verify the whole system now granted there it's it's interesting because the bitcoin core code base written in c++ actually cannot be formally verified in the way that other pieces of software can be maybe in the future it will you know that it'll have that ability but until then we we kind of that's well, the there's part always we have to trust, is the there's always code. trust somewhere uh, i mean i don't believe you can you can get out of trust completely, but you can. There are steps you can take, and you can. Sovereignty is a. Uh, it's not a binary thing. You're. You're. This is on a scale, and that. That's the thing. You don't have to have all your belongings in Bitcoin. You can. You can have other types of money. You can have other types of assets, and uh, you can run a full node. You can have a hardware wallet. You can have all of it on your phone. I mean, you can choose to what extent you want to to use the system and i think this is really powerful and it's like something that gets lost in some of the discussions you have about it because it's so binary you think everyone will use this what will the world look like where everybody uses bitcoin well it doesn't have to be like that it's if it just keeps on doing what it does right now that's enough and that will onboard a lot more people and wealth creation is not a it's not a zero sum game uh, it can still go up in value infinitely without being altered in the future it it can just stay at it as it is and still like suck in sponge in all this wealth yeah i believe I agree. it's like a, a black hole yeah exactly <laughs> <laughs> Whatever yeah. that is like, I, I've never been, I've never visited <laughs> one, but uh, I've I've heard it. Oh, really? so I've heard. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Another thing about this uh, falsification and uh, verification, the thing that the unforgeable costliness, uh, yeah, thing. This is a this is a great way to start a conversation with someone who you want to. <laughs> befriend or defriend for the rest of their lives like unforgeable costliness is is one of the things that they the people that first thought about this thing like framed they, they sort of re uh how, how to put this is a new way of thinking about scarcity and thinking about verification and thinking about what makes gold valuable for instance it's like that is, in a way, easy to verify, but in another way, not because you really need quite a lot of chemistry skills to to really verify that a gold bar is really a gold bar. And you probably need to trust the third party. And Bitcoin sort of turns that on its head and says, like, the, the easy verification of the, the private key and the public key and everything, that's, yeah, uh, easy to verify is the flip side of the unforgeable coin like if something is easy to verify the validity of it's hard to for it's hard to yeah. forge 
It's hard to that's fake. Always, that's been you know, something fascinating to me about cryptography is, is that trapdoor aspect of it. Yeah, uh, and that's, that's really new. I mean, like really expensive paintings, like Da Vinci paintings, as I, I bring up Da Vinci paintings in the book, and that they're valuable because there are few of them. And if they had that easy verification thing, there wouldn't be as many false copies of them out there. Yeah, one, one of the most famous Da Vinci paintings recently is the Salvatore Mundi. D- do you bring it up in the book? Have you read about this? Yeah. Yeah, it does. Uh, I, I do. It, it, uh, it, people didn't know that it was a Da Vinci. They weren't sure. Yeah, and then they, uh, didn't know they restored it. it. And so, you know, you could actually argue because in the restoration process, they essentially repainted it. And so it's not really Da Vinci who painted it <laughs> in the sense that it was a, a restoration <laughs> expert who, who did it. Now, obviously, originally, perhaps it was, and there are, you know, there's very good evidence that it was actually Da Vinci who painted it. And it, it's the most expensive one. And I think that it went for hundreds of million, $450 million. Yeah. Yeah, four hundred and fifty. I have I have the section in the book here. A poster of the painting isn't expensive at all, but the original would cost you at least four hundred and fifty million. It was lost, dollars. and then it was lost in the mid seventeenth century, and then rediscovered in nineteen seventy eight and restored. Oh, really? I didn't know it. I didn't know the history about it, but <laughs> very interesting. Yeah, it's worth. Uh, 450 million US dollars because we agree to frame its scarcity around the notion that it's a Da Vinci original, of which there are only 13 left, or something like that. And I had this in the conversation with, with Guy Swan the other day, like uh, <laughs> these painters like Dali and uh, Picasso and the, uh, the uh, 20th century big painters, they used to sign their receipts at the restaurants when they had dinner and uh, then the the receipt became more valuable than than the price of the uh, of the food, so they could actually pay for their food by signing the receipts. But what happened later was, <laughs> according to the to the story here, is like they did it so many times so that that in turn turned these receipts more abundant, and then they lost value because they weren't scarce any longer because you could find their signatures on every, everything and anything. I find that really fascinating. That's that's like, that's how money works. <laughs> Someone puts a signature on something and all of a sudden it's valuable. And then again, it's not because if there's too much of it around, it, it loses yeah, value. So there's, you know, the, on, on the signature aspect yeah. of it, this is something that people have been concerned about with like the, the quantum computing. Is that something you've, you've dug into at all? Have any interest in? Not really. My view on the quantum computing thing there is, is like if that happens and if, if this SHA-256 hashing algorithm, if it's, if it's ever broken by quantum computing, everything else breaks down as well. And Bitcoin is like the least of our problems then. Everything in computer security just would just fail if that if that was to happen. So I I, I don't think this is a yeah, people talk about it in, when talking about Bitcoin a lot, but I think the the problem there is a lot bigger than just for Bitcoin. Is it's sort of easy? You could just switch to a, an algorithm that was uh, 
like quantum proof. <laughs> and uh, all you need is a consensus to do that. And if it's obvious, it's obvious and that will just happen. But And you'll just reset the whole thing from a certain point in time. It's harder with well, the, on the topic the, uh, of hard forks. The uh, uh, traditional know, banking like, system. I feel like there's a spectrum of hard forks where you know on one end there's what you're talking about quantum you know post quantum cryptography you know essentially preventing Bitcoin from dying right so a a critical flaw where yeah we should hard fork and then yeah. there's hard forks that are like oh well. Aesthetically, yeah. I, it would be nicer if Bitcoin had this or that, right? Where do you fall on that continuum? <laughs> I think Bitcoin will probably never hard fork again, unless there's uh, the scenario we talked about just before here about with the quantum computing or something like that. Something uh, a threat to the system, something that could potentially break it. Then we might need a hard fork, but it will probably never hard fork again unless we get a, a a threat of that magnitude. That's how I look look at it. I mean, for for so many node owners to agree on to such an extent that I just don't find it plausible. Look at democracies and how opinionated everyone is, and how hard it is for people to find consensus in anything. So uh, I don't believe right. Yeah, we'll see a hard Despite fork the wishes anytime soon. Of, of many. Bitcoin. <laughs> you know, it's it's interesting to me how many people are f- or were for a hard fork, and then when it didn't happen, they went off and created their altcoin anyway. And so that's where I feel like they it's a little bit disingenuous. Like you should just go create your own altcoin instead of trying to get Bitcoin to do a hard fork. Yeah, I guess. It- in their view, they, uh, there was a hard fork, and they really did. Uh, they are following the original idea. They, but this is the thing about leaderless systems. You can't really force anyone to do anything. And yeah, This is a good thing, really. And, I mean, <laughs> the whole Bitcoin Cash thing, I mean, that's where I really started to be a hardcore Bitcoiner and really believe in the system and the anti-fragility of the system when when the whole 2x debacle played out as it did and we got SegWit and we didn't get the rest of the bullshit even though there was a big like cartel trying to enforce it on people and they, they just couldn't do that. That's the point where I really started believing in that this is sufficiently decentralized to actually survive because money, monetary incentives, sorry, <laughs> a problematic thing, and it's it's hard for an invention such as this to thrive in. Uh, I, I mean, to to survive all these attack vectors, and I I think that was a point where where it really showed its strength. It showed its teeth, so to speak. I think it's all playing out pretty neatly as it is. Like the uh, Bitcoin Cash people, like forking off that coin into two different shit coins one year later that's sort of <laughs> i mean it's uh, you couldn't you couldn't write that it's a it's a reality uh, sitcom <laughs> you can just grab your popcorns and, and watch it play out as it, as it did because there are a lot of people with hu- hubris in the space and uh, with all these big egos they're 
they're bound to like fork off until they have personal token each one of them and <laughs> i'm fine with that i can't like that they they went away with and the the debate ended and they they left and now people don't listen to them anymore well i'm sure that it will happen again it's probably going to be a pattern yeah but probably in a slightly different way i i think like the altcoins were the first attempt at like leeching off this these buzzwords and like riding this wave like the really early altcoins like litecoin and peercoin and prime coin and whatever they were called and then the Bitcoin forks was like the next attempt. I mean, like you, you can't make a, a second Bitcoin, but you can fork Bitcoin, and that that will do something. But to me, it was so, sort of obvious from the beginning. I mean, both coins increased in value just right after after it happened, right? If I remember it correctly. But it was more of a a failed train robbery than a, a Christmas gift. <laughs> in hindsight, uh, like. Well, if you claimed your Bitcoin cash early on, and it, the good part about it is that it taught people about private keys. Right. Uh, I, I had another, there's another thing in my, my personal Bitcoin history there. I, I wrote an article that with the title, Casual Bitcoin Users You Need to buy, Know About the 1st of August. And I wrote that at the end of 2017, just just a basic thing about in order to, this fork is coming up and in order to turn your worthless Bitcoin cash into real Bitcoins, you need to own your own keys. And it was like just a basic thing of how to get your own keys. And that got sort of viral and got like 70,000 reads or something, I believe. So I saw that and I thought like, wow, <laughs> there is still some ground to... Uh, for me to, uh, there's still something for me to do in this space. The door is wide open here. If I if I'm this interested now and I'm still in an early phase, I might as well just keep on writing about this and see what happens. So that uh, that was a, uh, and I think that thing taught a lot of casual Bitcoin users at the time to get control of their own keys and not to trust people and like it's a learning process and these things play their part. I believe. Yeah, it's interesting. I've heard people say that they started running a full node because of it. Yeah, they showed up. And I myself, <laughs> I didn't really understand like the peer-to-peer network and kind of node governance, essentially, of being able to kind of dictate the consensus rules that you're going to be using when you accept Bitcoin. That's not really something I thought through before 2017. I just kind of assumed that it worked. Yeah, yeah, same here. Same here. Uh, uh, yeah, that's uh, if it if it helped create more full nodes, then it then it was a good thing in the long run. I mean, it's a blip in history. It will be remembered as like yeah, an event in Bitcoin's prehistory. I'm thinking like 200 years from now. Yeah, and it's funny when you read about early religions, you do see that they they split off a lot on at the beginning, right? And so there's definitely parallels there as well, Protestants and Catholics and whatnot. Yeah, uh, but he- here's yeah. my perspective I'm- on that, and that is that this is the the these are religious people trying to hijack uh, science and like claiming that something is scientific when it really isn't, and Bitcoin is the the unreligious way of looking at things because this is the thing that you can actually verify. Which is not. I feel like that's why we can joke about being a religion 
if we actually were a religion, we wouldn't really be able to joke about it. <laughs> no, no. That it's like yeah. the pastafari in that in that sense. Uh, yeah. and I, you know, people call it like a <laughs> cult. It's like, oh, okay. <laughs> uh, yeah, but states are cults. <laughs> very strong ones. Very violent ones, too. Yeah, yeah. So this is the only thing that isn't a cult. <laughs> yeah. Welcome to Bitcoin. The only thing that's not a cult. In a sense. <laughs> yes. You have to have these... Uh, these views or or you're not or you're not on board really <laughs> yeah it's that's kind of the other part of consensus is that if you're a little bit out of consensus then you're an altcoin right and i think that's that's challenging for some people who like they want to have they want to think of themselves as like independent free thinkers and it's like okay but you have to understand yeah. that like this is kind of a social phenomenon too and, and we're automating a social consensus with software yeah, uh, and this is—I still find this hard to wrap my he- head around that something can be so empowering for the individual and at the same time be such a social thing. It's like <laughs> the the worst form of socialism empowering the best form of free market capitalism or something. I I don't know how to how to describe it really, but the the social aspect is really important, of course, and the, like. It's such a uh, such a beautiful, beautifully designed system. On that note, I think we can uh, close out the episode. All right, thanks a lot for having me on. Thanks for coming on. Uh, where can people find your book? They can find it on Amazon, and they can find it. It's like I said before; it's available in Finnish now. Don't remember the name of the website, but I'm sure you'll find it if you're in Finland. <laughs> And it's available on Amazon in German and English at the moment. A Russian version is coming up. And I think the best way to read it is to listen to it on Guy Swan's podcast, The Cryptoconomy, where he reads the entire book in five one-hour episodes and comments on each chapter afterwards. And I really liked his him elaborating on the ideas a bit further after every chapter. Oh, that's nice. He puts his own commentary in it. All right. Well, I look forward to listening to it. Yeah. I uh, hope you like it. Thanks for coming on. Yeah. Thank you. Bye. I'd get guys that were coming through training more experienced than me. And the good SEAL leaders would come through that training and be like, oh, that was awesome, man. Yeah. You, hey, you just kicked our ass. Thank you. We're going to try and do better. What did you see? Like they would just want feedback, just want suggestions. And then you'd get other guys coming through that it was everyone else's fault and the training wasn't real. It's not realistic to get hit from three sides. Really? Why is that? Where do you see that in the Geneva Convention that you're not allowed to ambush from three sides? And that attitude never turned out well. It just never, it's zero, zero percent of turning out well of, hey, the training is unrealistic, the training is this, the training is that. Like, no, actually, just do the SOPs, step up and lead. And everything works. And that was the other amazing thing is you'd see the same problems. And once a, once the task unit got good, you, they, you couldn't even stop them. Because it's, no. it's 40 guys against four or five. As you know, the training, the training guys are, it's like four or five guys out there shooting them up. You know? uh-huh. So. Yeah, I mean, you, you, when you're running those scenarios, 
you can't bring your guys back to life, which you can remotely do fast enough to apply a decent amount of pressure to when that troop has just gotten up on step. Yep. And then, then everybody is so happy. Yeah, yeah. You can't, you, you're right. You can't reset people. You can't reset the op for quick enough because the, because the, when you get a SEAL troop that's just in straight ag- aggressive murder mode and going hard, every yeah. little thing they see, they're assaulting. It's awesome. It's a beautiful thing to see. Yeah. 